Kids, if you are third grade or under, I invite you to join the Merriams for Children's Church today. You guys can go ahead and follow them. They are right back there. There they go. The last couple of weeks, the Apostle Paul has told Titus, finish the work, appoint elders. Today he says, finish the work, refute the opposition. Who knows what this is? <laughs> for, the, for those who are listening online and you can't see me here, I'm holding up a red Starbucks holiday cup. I heard somebody say blasphemy. In case you live under a rock or you don't turn on your TV at all, this past week these red cups caused quite a commotion. On social media, on national news, on talk show hosts, I tell you what, even my board on Tuesday night on a board meeting, I had one of these cups and they were talking about these. Now, if you don't know what's going on, I don't know exactly how it started, but there was a gentleman that I saw a, a video, a YouTube video on named Joshua Feuerstein. I may be butchering his last name, but he's got 1.8 million followers on Facebook and he is a former television and radio evangelist. Now, he made us stink this past week by looking at one of these cups and, and looking and saying, look, it does not say Merry Christmas on it. And it doesn't have any sort of reindeer or snowmen or anything else. And he went on to say, Starbucks is attacking Christianity because of this. He's trying to take the Christ out of Christmas. If this is true, I would like to gather up my board and my cabinet, and we need to figure out how to refute this heinous, heinous act. I mean, the Apostle Paul tells us, right, to refute the opposition. And if Starbucks is trying to take the Christ out of Christianity, we need to gather. Amen? Now, you guys are like, he's being sarcastic, isn't he? Yes, I am very sarcastic. This red cup has absolutely nothing to do with the Christ in Christmas. But Joshua Feuerstein is giving all Christians a bad name by claiming that we're trying to, or he's wanting us to stick it to Starbucks because they took Christmas off the cup. They never had Merry Christmas written on the cup. Perhaps we need not fight against Starbucks. I mean, after all, one of their core values is to create a culture of belonging, inclusion, and diversity. Sounds like it could be a core value of any church, right? So maybe we shouldn't attack the corporate giant of Starbucks. Maybe we should put serious thought into refuting people like this Joshua Feuerstein. I mean, he is a professed Christian. But he's, he's encouraging people to go down a road that maybe Jesus himself wouldn't go down. He is encouraging a divisiveness. Maybe it isn't Starbucks we need to go after, but people like Mr. Furstein. Food for thought, or maybe drink for thought. Let's pray. God, your word tells us about you. It tells us about your heart for us. It gives us guidance and correction as to how to lead and learn and live as people. 
I pray, Father, that you would speak to us through your scriptures today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We're in the beginning parts of a series on the pastoral letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and we're starting in the latter. The last couple of weeks, we've seen Paul's charge to Titus to finish the work, appoint elders. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at how an elder should be leading in the home with a and kids before leading in the church. Last week, we looked at this list of character traits, leadership qualities, a list of musts and must-nots that Paul lays out that an elder must be or must not be. He finished that list last week with this, Titus chapter 1, verse 9. An elder must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. Show those who oppose it where they are wrong. Now this phrase catapults us into this week's portion of the letter. Continuing on, verses 10 through 16. Paul says, For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation or of the circumcision party. They must be silenced because they are turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching. And they do it only for money. Even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, The people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. This is true. So reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. They must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who have turned away from the truth. Verse 15, everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. Now, if you need to turn a page, turn it to Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. Paul continues, Do not get involved in foolish discussions about genealogies or spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and a second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth, and their own sins condemn them. So the next portion of Paul's letter, the next portion of finish the work after appoint elders, is refute the opposition. Now me being me, before I go in with guns blazing, I want to know who and what I'm up against. So for a little bit, we're going to look at that. Who Paul is saying to refute. And we're going to do so using the old newspaper questions. The who, what, when, where, why, and how. Starting with who. Who is the opposition that Paul is talking about? Well, I believe, this is James, believes that the opposition Paul is telling Titus that that, that he needed to refute was divisive Jewish Christian leaders. Divisive Jewish Christian leaders. Here's why I think this. First, people who are divisive. Titus 3 verse 10 begins, if people are causing division among you. Now, the word for causing division is heretikos. 
Who has a King James Bible in here that they're reading out of? Okay. A couple people. See in there the word heretic on verse 10, yes? Okay. Originally, this word did not have a bad meaning. It simply meant to choose or to have a distinct opinion. It meant picking a group that you would associate with. Now, the negative connotation crept in when the person choosing the opinion he was part of was a factious person, specializing in half-truths and misimpressions to win others over, creating harmful divisions. So a heretic, one commentator says, is simply a man who has decided that he was right and everyone else was wrong. Divisive. Now, the challenge for Titus was that there was not only one guy who was being divisive. There was a lot. Chapter 1, verse 10 begins, there are many rebellious people. And these many must be refuted. Divisive Jewish Christian teachers. The second word in that phrase, the Jewish reference. Titus 1, verse 14, there is a reference to Jewish myths. In chapter 3, verse 9, there's mention of fights and obedience about Jewish law. Would a non-Jew have any reason to be pushing people to adhere to Jewish traditions? Doubtful. Now, there's also the comment about the circumcision party. Titus 1, verse 10. It says, There's many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those of the circumcision party. Now, this was a group of Jewish Christians who had converted to Christianity, who were claiming that in order to be fully saved, you must still be circumcised. This is not a new group that just sprung up on the island of Crete. This is a group that Paul had had to talk to in the past. In fact, Peter also talked about them. When the Gentiles started getting saved and, and Peter came back to the church in Jerusalem to give an update, he said this in Acts chapter 11. Said soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, those of the circumcision or Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of uncircumcised men, of Gentiles, and even ate with them, they said. Later on, the apostle Paul and Peter were again dealing with the same group of people in Galatia, and if you look in Galatians 2.12, it uses the same phrase, those of the circumcision party. Now I'll unpack a little bit more of what they believed in just a little bit, but for now, this reference gives me added weight to the fact that I think the people Titus was to rebuke had Jewish roots. So divisive Jewish Christian teachers. The Christian reference. I believe these people had been converted, at least to some degree, to Christianity. In verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul says that these people claim to know God. Now that in itself may not prove that they are following Christ, but we can see in Paul's instructions about how to handle them, the instructions he gives are instructions of ways to handle people who are one of us, who are Christians, who are in the church. See this in 3 verse 10. It says, if people are causing divisions among you, give a first and a second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. Now that style, that approach was something that Paul taught. It was something that Jesus taught. The fact that Paul even wants Titus to address this group shows me that they claim Christ. So otherwise, Paul would have told them, just ignore them. 
Don't, don't worry about them at all. They are unbelievers. We can see that would have been, would have been Paul's, uh, Paul's process in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. So hearing that, I say this opposition group is a group of divisive Jewish Christian teachers. And the last part, teachers. I deduce from what it appears to be these men's careers talking. In verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 10, there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. Chapter 3, verse 9, don't get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigree. Discussions and talking. This is what teachers do, right? Mike? Debbie? Christy? Now, I'm not saying you guys are... (laughs) I'm digging a hole here, okay? (laughs) Dig a little hole. You guys are not just useless talkers. (laughs) Let me show you why, okay? <laughs> I knew as soon as I wrote that, I'd start offending people. Verse 11 says, and they do it for money. Okay, that's their jobs. Now let's look at what they teach. So the teachers who are still shaking their heads at me can breathe a little, a little like sigh of, please don't let your anger grow in me, Christy. <laughs> we talked about that last week. It can't grow. Oh, goodness. We've looked at the who, now we're looking at the what. What did these people teach? Now, scholars think there were quite a few different things that they could have taught. One is easy to find. It's that reference to the circumcision party. Or as the New Living Translation reads, those who insist on circumcision for salvation. So perhaps this group was going around saying, yes, you know Jesus, but you're not fully saved unless you have a certain mark. Now, before we start throwing too many stones at this group, at this potential teaching, let's remind ourselves what circumcision was for the Old Testament Jews. It was a sign of God's covenant. It was instituted by God. So it was a good thing. It was a way someone was marked and claimed by God. It was something that showed others that they were set apart for Jehovah. It meant you belonged to the family of God. For countless generations, circumcision had been the visible sign that you were God's people. You were in God's family. Now let's put ourselves in their shoes. If we had that upbringing, if every time the the rabbi Sunday school teacher had taught about salvation, they had mentioned circumcision, if every time you sat around the dinner table and talked as a family, talking about forever and salvation and what makes you God's people, the idea of being circumcised came up, Can you fault them for saying, hey, this has to be part of the equation? Yes, I'm I'm new to this whole Jesus thing, but remember for years and years and years and years, God said you have to be circumcised. It would have been hard for them to change their understanding of salvation or the marks of salvation. But see, Jesus had come and he had instituted a, a new way to become part of the family of God through faith in himself. And the beauty of this gospel that Paul had preached was that it was for all to hear, circumcised and uncircumcised. We see that at the beginning of the letter to Titus in verse 3. And just at the right time, this message was revealed, which we announced to everyone. 
Remember Paul's instructions? That an elder must be firm in their belief, strong in the trustworthy message that he was taught? If the circumcision party was teaching one more step, faith in Jesus and this visible sign, then it wasn't a correct gospel, was it? It wasn't the message Paul had passed on to Titus to pass on to others. So that's one of the things the scholars think these oppositional teachers may have been teaching. Another thing they believed that they could have been teaching was a strict adherence to certain food and purity laws that also came from the Jewish faith. You see hints of this in verse 15 of chapter 1. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure. But nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. There are many scholars who say that this line, this quote, is a reference to Jesus' teaching on inner purity in Matthew chapter 23. There, Jesus is correcting the Pharisees saying, look, you guys put so much emphasis on the outside of the cup, the outside of the person, but you neglect the inside. It's filthy dirty. Matthew 23 25 and 26, Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. Now another time Jesus was teaching on food laws. He says this in Mark chapter 7. He called the crowd to come and hear. And he said, all of you, listen. Try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You're defiled by what comes out of your heart. Nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving. Their minds, their consciences are corrupted. So when Paul said this in verse 15, it very well could have been a reference to these teachers saying people had to take seriously the Old Testament food laws. That would make sense looking at verse 9 in chapter 3 when he talks about quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. Now here's another potential teaching. Many modern-day scholars point to the possibility of these divisive Jewish Christian teachers emphasizing other regulations that the old Jewish faith had put on its followers. Maybe regulations not found explicit in the law and the prophets, but regulations that had come about when the rabbis sat around and debated what different texts meant. Chapter 1, verse 14, they must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who have turned away from the faith. In verse 9 of chapter 3, it talks about spiritual pedigrees or genealogies. Now, perhaps there were some Old Testament heroes of the faith that had certain ways of living that these teachers were saying everybody must follow. Or perhaps they were saying there's a certain pedigree, there's a certain genealogy that makes you a true follower of Christ or a true Christian. There's a lot of people that think that this was a reference to Hebraic tribal identity, saying, yes, these people are true tribal Hebrews or these people aren't. Any of these options that these oppositional teachers could have been teaching, all they were doing was creating a storm of controversy in the church. They were creating division. They were wasting time running down theological trails. They were useless and unprofitable, which is interesting because that's exactly opposite of what 
Paul says in chapter 3, verse 8, when he talks about what followers of Christ believe, he says these teachings are good and beneficial, good and profitable. So we don't know for sure what these teachers were trying to teach, but it appears that they were trying to add to the simple message of salvation. Trying to say that the cross and Christ on the cross was not sufficient. Trying to say that grace was not enough. That in order to be truly good, you must follow more rules and regulations. That's the what. So we've looked at who, and we've looked at what. The others are going to go by more quickly. Where, when, and how are all kind of answered in verse 11. It says, they must be silenced. For they are turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching. Turning whole families. From this verse, we can deduce that the teaching was being done in homes, which is no surprise to us because last week we talked about these churches meeting in homes. But even if it wasn't a formal church service, it was not uncommon in that day and age for a family to invite a traveling teacher into their house. And to be taught by them. It'd be like a family devotional night with a specialized teacher. And can you see how that would be tumultuous to a family? For some in the family who are grounded in their faith, knowing that Christ's work on the cross was enough, being told by a professional, a traveling teacher who gets paid to do this, for the others in the family who weren't as secure in their understanding of faith, that would cause like stirring and unrest, yeah? You see that? This is somebody in their home who's getting paid to do this saying, wait, some of you believe this, but I want to say you've got to believe that and this. This would not have been a good thing to create unrest in families as the family was the community, the social and the, the relational structure of the early church. Teaching in the homes. That's where I see the where, the when, and the how. Now what about the why? Why were these people teaching this? Again, we don't know for certain. We could go back and say, well, it's what the opposition knew. And it's what they were taught growing up. So they want others to know that. And if that was the case, then the why could have been a simple innocence or a lack of full understanding. But there's clues in our text that make us think that it's not an innocent lack of understanding. Again, chapter 1, verse 10 There's many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. The word deceive is phrenopatas. It literally means mind deceiver or seducer. It's it's one word taken from two words, friend and apateo, which when put together they mean leading others into their delusions. When you see the meaning of that word and you combine it with what we see in chapter 3, verse 10, where there's one warning, two warnings, and still a refusal to turn, it leads us to believe that these people were teaching this deliberately. They were intentionally trying to mislead other people. Now, I think realizing this, it gives credence as to why Paul would call them such names. Listen to what he called them. This is verse 15 and 16. He calls them corrupt. He says, unbelieving minds and consciences, meaning every thought of theirs was bad and inappropriate. He calls them detestable, disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. To look up the meaning of those words in Greek, it means what it says in English. 
They're not good. Paul says people like this have turned away from the truth. They have a hardened state of mind, and their own sins have condemned them. Their continued sins have condemned them. Now, these are harsh words and direct words from Paul. And seeing what kind of people they are, it's no wonder that Paul says they must be silenced. That's verse 11. Reprimand them sternly. That's verse 13. The word for silenced in Greek means to be muzzled, to be gagged. You know that guy who started this whole, hey, uh, Starbucks is trying to take Christians out of Christianity or Christians out of Christmas or, you know, that, that chaos? I read some of the, the Facebook posts of the people that were following him, and there was some genuine, heartfelt believers in Jesus that wanted to take this guy out behind a barn and beat him with a wet noodle. They wanted to silence him, and they told him, be quiet, in a lot less nice words than that. Now, recognizing that this guy could be trying to cause some division and seeing what Paul says to those, to Titus about those who are causing division, wouldn't it be right for them to have tried to just shut him up? Just for the sake of shutting him up? Well, yes, but I think Paul would say there's more to it than that. You got to do more than just shut him up for the sake of shutting him up. Paul is clear. Address the opposition. Silence them. Reprimand them. One commentary says, allowing sin to continue will never rescue a person from disobedience. So Paul says, correct them. But in this, make sure we don't miss Paul's heart. And we see his heart in verse 13. This is true, he says. So reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith, so that they may have a sound faith. Paul is not saying these people are terrible, stay away. He's saying go reconvert them, bring them back to a solid foundation, to a solid faith. Restore them as they have fallen. And remember from some of the character traits last week when he says that, that an elder can't be violent, it meant not to bully people. So it would be the same here. Even in correction and rebuke of opposition, do not bully them. He says, give them a warning. And then a second warning. Do you see the hope in that? Do you see the grace that Paul is offering there? Now the word warning means an admonition. And this includes instruction, correction, or warning with a view to regaining the offender. Not just shutting them up. More than the formal accusation, the process includes corrective teaching in an effort to correct and convince the offender of the ethical or doctrinal error and win him back. This was Paul's heart. You'll see it flipped two pages back, at least it's two in my Bible, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Paul says this, Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change their hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they have been held captive by by him to do whatever he wants. That's Paul's heart. And it was Jesus' heart too. I told you I'd come back to his view on correction. 
on divisiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, we see Jesus' heart here. This is a section on conflict, which we could also call division. Jesus says, go, address the wrong individually. Then take somebody else. And if it still doesn't work, then bring them before the church. See, that sounds similar to give a first warning and a second warning. Now, why would Jesus want to do that? In Matthew 18, 15, he says, If the other person listens and confesses, you have won that person back. The goal in rebuttal has always got to be to return that person to a correct understanding of faith, to restore them to the community of faith. Yes, we must rebuke with strong words. We must speak to the issue clearly. We must clarify the evil and the incorrect teaching, but we must do so in love, not out of self-defense. The goal is not, I'm right, you're wrong. The goal is so the offender can be returned to sound faith. This seems to be what both Paul and Jesus are wanting. Finish the work. Paul says, refute the opposition. Now, does this tie in at all with the church today? Yes. I can't say it any better than one commentator. He said this, The modern church falls prey to the same mentality, arguing and dividing itself over opinions, political views, parenting styles, worship styles, secondary theological issues, and a vast assortment of opinions and personal preference that we elevate into spiritual law. When this occurs, the result is the same today as in the first century. The church is distracted from its mission to bring salvation, love, and hope to a dying world. Rather than attracting the unbeliever to something new and good, a community of faith and the grace of God, the church repels the outside world because of its judgmental attitude and political bickering. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but it's happened countless times to me where I've been talking about church with people and they say, why would I want to join the church? Look at all the denominations. They can't even figure it out. It's the same thing we're wrestling with in the first century. I wonder how many of the debates and conversations that rage on social media or around the water cooler on breaks at work or between denominational stalwarts, I wonder how many of those conversations Paul would have labeled as useless talk. I wonder how many would be considered foolish discussions. Here's where I want to try and bring this home to us with just some questions for us to ponder, some questions to think about. One of the things that the oppositional group may have been teaching was that there was more steps to salvation. Christ alone and one more thing. In our lives, do we have a deep enough understanding of the true gospel message that we would be able to detect if we are trying to set up more steps and regulations for ourselves or for our family or for our friends or for non-believers? Are there people that we interact with, discussions that we get involved in that could be considered useless? Could these discussions be driving people further away from the faith rather than into true and sound doctrine? Now, I'm not saying don't ever have spiritual conversations. Don't ever have theological conversations. 
Because, as one guy writes, there are certainly numerous areas in belief and practice where modern Christians must allow differences to exist side by side. There are also too many situations where indiscriminate open-mindedness has allowed the historical gospel to be diluted to suit modern and postmodern sensibilities. This text could be a proof text in religious bigotry and narrow-mindedness, or it might be read as an authoritative wake-up call for many of us today. Check our conversations. Now, could it be that there is a legitimate need for us to correct someone? If that's the case, are we doing it with the right motive, with the right heart? Could today be a gut check into our spirit? Here's something that could really hit home. For those that have their pictures on our wall as official leadership, or for those who may be considering uh, saying they're willing to serve in leadership, are we sound enough in our own understanding in the gospel to be able to see and address potential heretical teaching? Are we willing to do that? In the last decade here at First Church, there has been some times of divisiveness. We're not immune to this sort of thing. Will it always be as easy and as humorous as a red cup? No. There's going to be times. It has been and will be painful and difficult. But that's one of the joys that God gives us as He gives those people with leadership skill and ability. He also gives the correct heart and the right words. And if we're listening to His whispers we will be able to restore people, not just to correct understanding, but to the community of faith. So chew on those things. Chew on those questions. And here's a little plug. Having heard three weeks on uh, biblical leadership teaching, be in prayer about joining our leadership team. On the back of your bulletin, we have some needs. We want to make you aware of those. Some, some pillar positions, um, some areas where we could use people who are gifted and passionate in those areas. Look at those. Pray over those. Consider serving those in those areas. And if you're willing, let us know. But know that much like Paul told Titus, we'll still need to evaluate whether or not that's the right fit. At the very least, if you say you're willing, you might get a cup of coffee with me in a red Starbucks cup. Amen? Hey, let's pray. Lord God, I'm grateful for your teaching to us. I'm grateful for the examples that you give us of ways we need to interact, even with those who don't see eye to eye with us. God, I need to pray for wisdom and discernment for myself and for us as a body to know what conversations to address and which ones to just let go. We want to be a people, Lord, that draws people to you and not pushes them away. And yet we also want to be a people who are grounded in the faith and the gospel that you have passed on from generation to generation to us today. Help us to know how to do this, how to best refute the opposition in our own lives and here in this church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close in song this morning?